Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This year on SageCast, we're talking with a variety of Pomona College faculty members about how they came to study what they study, teach what they teach, and love the field that they love. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science, Nicole Holliday, whose research explores how we interact with language to construct our personal identity. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. <laughs> it's great to have you with us. Excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with your academic interests. Can you, can you trace back um, to the point when you discovered your interest in linguistics? Yeah, I actually could probably, if I had a calendar, I could tell you the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> that specific. Um, I was a kid that was good at school, like a lot of academics, right? But there was nothing that was like the thing, right? I wasn't like a math genius or like a great writer or something. Um, And I got to college and I was double majoring in Spanish and Arabic because I loved Spanish. I was into languages, I thought. Um, And a friend of mine, uh, her father was like, oh, you should take a linguistics class because he had studied linguistics and he thought I would like it. And I signed up for introduction to linguistics in the spring of my first year. And I got there and I was like, Yes, this is it. I literally changed my major <laughs> like, the same week I changed my major. Um, I, I kept the Spanish, but I, I dropped the Arabic because I, I didn't think I was going to get where, I, like, to be able to really speak Arabic because it's hard unless you're living somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but linguistics was like, you know, I just got in there. I was like, you can study language as a science? Like, why didn't anyone tell me this before? <laughs> I've been you missing sort of, out. Yeah? You sort of realize this is the essence of why I love languages, right? It's it's not just this language or that language. It's the things that bind them all together. Yeah, so I thought, uh, like, I would be, this is not what you should do in high school, kids, but I would be, like, in <laughs> biology class, like, memorizing Spanish verb conjugations. Like, like I wanted to do the grammar. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Why? Yeah, why? As somebody who had to write those out in school, all those conjugations, I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, I did it, like, in my free time when I was supposed to be studying other stuff. Um, within linguistics, you focus on sociolinguistics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's kind of, um, linguistics is nice because it's amorphous. So there are linguists who do stuff that looks more like psychology or more like neuroscience or more like anthropology. Um, so we have a lot of nice overlap. It's very interdisciplinary. Sociolinguistics is kind of the the social side. So um, we are interested in how language operates in society um, and sort of what that means both for the language but also for the people. Mm-hmm. So for For example, my uh, specific research interest, the question is, what does it mean to sound black? So if you have the experience of you hear someone behind you, but you can't see them and you know all kinds of things about them or you make all kinds of assumptions about them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we're, we're actually pretty good at this, although we can be wrong. Um, but I want to know how you made that judgment. OK, I heard this black guy. Like, how did I know he was a black guy? And what does that mean for the person that you've heard? Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. for their opportunities, for the way that they move about the world, too. Mm-hmm. So, um I know that part of that work is involved studying black and multiracial uh, Americans. Can you tell us about how that got started? Yeah, so um, I always joke that uh, Obama is why I got into grad school. <laughs> Thanks, Obama. Um, Not but, that reason. Yeah, I know, right? Um, he's, he did so much for me. Um, so I was applying, you know, I had gone, uh, to, done my bachelor's degree at Ohio State. And at that time, I was really interested in the language rights of indigenous people in and in South America. So my undergraduate research was about um, Quechua Spanish bilingualism in Peru. Uh, and I had been there and I realized like, you know, I'm interested in the sort of social justice piece of that. But this also is a big issue like in my community in where I'm from in the United States. So why am I in Peru? Like, I go home. Um, and so when I applied to graduate programs, I was saying that I was interested in how people with multiple and complex racial identifications and changing racial identities would sort of use ethno-linguistic variation, so this language and race stuff, to perform their identities or sort of reflect and construct their identities using linguistic variation. Um, And at the time, Obama was the prime example of this, right? Like the most famous multiracial person in America still. Um, And he's, uh, he's a great case study, and I actually have a number of papers about him because he's so good at adapting to his audience, right? He sounds different when he talks to a black audience than when a white when he speaks to a white audience, but he still sounds like himself. Like Mm -hmm. I don't, this doesn't get framed as inauthentic usually except 
by people who, you know, already kind of dislike him. <laughs> but I, but it yeah. wasn't just him, right? I figured that maybe this was something to do about um, the social pressure that he as a person who had been in so many different racialized situations and has himself identified as multiracial and black, maybe it was something that he had adapted to do as a function of his identity. Mm-hmm. And how do you go about studying that? Walk us through our, your methodology a little bit. Yeah. So the big, you know, my big dissertation research, which I, I've got a lot of interviews, so I'll be working on this for a, a while, <laughs> doing, doing stuff with this data set for a while. Um, I uh, was in Washington, D.C., and um, I did my Ph.D., my master's in Ph.D. at NYU. Um, and I was at NYU when I was like, OK, well, there's lots of multiracial people in New York. This should be easy. The problem with New York was that a lot of there's a lot of multiracial people, but there's a lot of um, first and second generation immigrants. Mm-hmm. So every person that I was recruiting was basically like, and I'm bilingual, which is cool and great for the world, but not great for my research <laughs> because you can't control. And thank you. If they yeah. grew up multilingual, you right. do, they you, you don't know what their influences are. They're not right. comparable to one another. Right. Um, and so I was mm-hmm. also interested in people that had sort of different social experiences. And I was going to study college students. So I was like, well, what about college students at historically black colleges? So I went to where there was the closest historically black college, which was D.C. So I was in D.C., um, recruiting people, being just so creepy, right? Sending out so many emails, like literally walking up to people in coffee shops and yeah, talking to strangers (laughs) and being like, do you have one black parent and one white parent? And can I please pay you to help me with my dissertation? Um, so I did a lot of that (laughs) and then, uh, they'd be like, yeah, sure. And then I'd say, okay, well, it's more complicated because actually not only have I now recruited you, I need you to recruit friends. So I ended up recording people. It was a pyramid scheme. (laughs) It was a pyramid scheme. Team, actually, but I paid them. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, everybody did okay in the end. Um, yeah. So I had the participant and I said, can you come in on one day with a white friend and I'm going to record you playing a game? And can you come on on a different day with a black friend and I'm going to record you playing the same game? Because originally I thought that maybe I was interested in ways that they might be changing certain linguistic Mm -hmm. patterns as a function of who they were talking to. Mm -hmm. Um, That turned out not to be what was interesting in my research. It was more about how they self-identified, but that was the design. So I brought them in. You know, these are like college age and grad school aged um, young guys at this point, and they're playing like an icebreaker game. <laughs> so these are their friends. It's super weird and awkward, but um, I, they're sitting in a room without me, and they've got these questions on cards, and they're turning over the cards, asking each other the questions. So it's things like, describe your perfect afternoon, <laughs> and what's the worst haircut you've ever had, and just things to get them talking, yeah, right? Yeah. And what I didn't anticipate was at the end of it, so many of these guys were like, Oh, thank you. That was so fun. I really got to know my friend better. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is also like a, this is a nice cathartic I, I should experience. make some money out of this. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody got paid. This is great. Um, but so that's kind of the methods. And then also with the participants themselves, I did what we call a sociolinguistic interview. So this is just to get people talking about their lives and their background. And I was also interested in some questions about how they self-identify as well as their experiences of racism. So um, with all of that data, right, I got three interviews with three different interlocutors, three different participants um, for each person that was a subject in the study. Um, So it actually ends up being a lot of data. And then what you do after that, um, or in my case, I was interested in their patterns of intonation. So how the voice goes up and down. And so I was going through and looking at those sound files and quantifying, sort of move, counting the measurements of how their voice moved up and down mm. in these different contexts to try to figure out whether they were patterning more like we think African-American speakers are likely to pattern or more like mainstream white speakers and sort of how they're using this in different contexts, different situations. Can you give us some examples of what you mean by those intonation changes? Is, is it, is it? <laughs> you know it's coming. Yeah, I know. It's really subtle and it's really, it's hard. But so I... Th- you know, it's hard when you're a scientist because to talk to the public, um, cause I'm like, well, I study this pitch accent and let me tell you about this pitch accent. And you're like, wait, what? Um, really it's like one intonational variable that I'm super interested in. And it's about, um, we have certain, uh, words and phrases that are stressed, right? And some of those words that are stressed have, uh, what we call a pitch accent. So they're particularly highlighted and their pitch moves, but also other things like their loudness and whatever. It sounds you know, salient, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on those particular um, types of syllables, I'm interested in whether they use a pitch that just goes up or a pitch that that goes um, down and then up, up sort of more dramatically. So what that sounds like is you could say, like, what I need is a book. And that need is just high. And it sticks out. That need is louder and longer. Right? What I need is a book. 
That's the mainstream pattern. The pattern that we see more likely um, with African-American speakers than with white speakers is what I need is a book. So it's a scoop rise. Need. Mm-hmm. All moves, right? Yeah. Um, and in it sounds like it's such a minutia thing, right? But for listeners, these kind of differences really are salient. And we think that they're part of why you're able to make that judgment. Oh, this person behind me is black, even though I haven't seen them. It's the movement of the voice as well as all the other linguistic stuff that's going on. And how do you measure it? So you kind of un- have an understanding of when it goes up, when it goes down, and how it goes up and down. And how do you me- how, how many factors do you have, and how do you measure? Yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, so we take the sound files, and then we have programs that allow you to actually look at the waveform and what we call the spectrogram, which is a spectral representation, visual representation of the speech. So it will track pitch for you. Kind of. It's not excellent, so you mm-hmm. still have to use your mm-hmm. ears, um, mm-hmm. but it does pretty well. And you can actually see the movement of a pitch tracker when you're doing that. So then you will label sort of where you hear those pitch accents. And then I take some additional measurements about the time, right? How long it takes to get from like the lowest pitch to the highest pitch. And those are the quantifiable things. So it ends up being about the proportion of which type of pitch accent they use as long and as well as the length that it takes them to realize a particular contour. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that you started off thinking that um, that multiracial people might speak differently to the white friend or the black friend, but you didn't find that to be as significant as you as you thought. Can you talk a little bit about that that the, those variables? Yeah, so it's not that um, the, we call it the interlocutor, right? The person you're talking to. Mm-hmm. It's not that the interlocutor doesn't matter. We know that overall in sociolinguistics, the interlocutor does matter. And people have a, a sort of layperson understanding of this too. So they'll say like, oh, I visited the South and I came back with a Southern accent. Like, yes, you did actually pro- probably modify your speech in the direction of the people mm-hmm. you're talking to. Yeah, I'm this a Southerner. Always- um, I've been here 20 years lost a lot of it, but obviously not all of it, but I go home and it just comes back like crazy. Yeah, I, totally. Right. So this is something that people have an awareness of happening. So what a, who you're talking to always does matter, but it wasn't for these particular participants, the difference for each of them between talking to their white friend and talking to their black friend was not the thing that was significant for most of them. It was for some of them. Um, the differences between the participants, the multiracial people that I was interested in, seemed to be more about how they self-identified. So some of them mm. self-identified very much as multiracial, and they're like, I'm black and white. I always check both boxes. I always tell people that I'm mixed. Like, that's my identity. And some of them were like, no, I'm black. My mom's white, but I'm black, and that's it. Like, end of the story. And then there were some who were in the middle who were like, well, it depends on who's asking, right? So that kind of self-identification actually seemed to be more predictive of whether they would use the intonational patterns associated with African-American English or not, right? I see. as opposed to whether they were talking to a white or black friend. Hmm. And how do, talking about that, how does language shape one's identity? Like how, if, if you, some, let's say the group of, of your students you were uh, in, your, in your study identify as mixed or biracial, and then one identifies, let's say, a little bit a different, uh, a different space within the spectrum. How does language shape their own, their identity? And yeah. vice versa. And vice yeah, versa. so it, it is a recursive process, right? Mm-hmm. So they are doing, we do language, right? It's not just something we have, it's something that we're constantly mm-hmm. uh, performing and mm-hmm. working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll do it to sort of align themselves, right? If you personally are you have one black parent and one white parent, but you self-identify as black, you live in black communities, that's your affiliation. You will try to sound more, either consciously or unconsciously, try to sound more mm-hmm. like the people of your community, right? right? And um, that's true for everybody, right? So if you don't identify, if you if you don't identify as black, you identify as more multiracial, you're gonna try to construct that kind of thing too, mm-hmm. right? But also it has consequences for the ways that other people see them, right? right? And this is where we get into like, it's not just race, right? It's age and it's class and it's gender. And it's the fact that I interviewed them in DC, even though some of them weren't from DC, it's all of these things. So we use, this this is an idea that was um, sort of put forth first by this linguist, Sarah Benor, the ethno-linguistic repertoire. So people have features from different varieties, things that are associated with race, with gender, with class, with region, that they can piece together to sort of perform their ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. It's sort of specialized to them. 
I, let's talk a little more about that that side of of uh, of things, the perception side. Uh, how how does language shape our perceptions and our misperceptions of other people? Yeah, a lot, right? <laughs> so there's this um, this apocryphal story that I I'm thinking about because it's um, we learned about it in one of the classes I'm teaching last week, um, where it's in a book uh, called English with an Accent by Rosina Lippi Green, which I. I use as a textbook, but I recommend for the casual reader as well. <laughs> um, and there's a story that she has about a French professor who was uh, doing an interview in French, um, and they loved him, and everything was great. And he switched to English, and he was a Southerner, white Southerner. Mm -hmm. And he felt the reaction in the room totally change, <laughs> right? Because in French, they assumed, oh, he's so articulate, he's well-spoken, da-da-da. And then he speaks this variety of English, which is very highly stigmatized. And so when he switched to English, they got all of the negative associations that people have with people from the South. And really? that's how you know, like, you know, I teach another class that's just linguistic discrimination. There's a lot of linguistic discrimination, and this is how you know that it's totally social and not linguistic, right? He's the same person, but when he switched to a different code, right, his code switched into English, mm -hmm. and his English was Southern, the whole way that he was evaluated and treated got was was changed, right? Mm -hmm. And how, talking about that, how can we learn to kind of switch our own code reading for things and not be as, you know, because it, it's ingrained in us, right? They're, like you were saying, oh... Uh, I heard the person behind me, and I know it's a black guy, and you associate things with that. How can we How can we kind of undo that and say, okay, it's a person, they're talking about this. How do we undo that? Yeah. And that's tied in with, like, perceptions of, of politeness or hostility or, mm -hmm. or things like that, right? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. So I have this ongoing project about um, black girls in school discipline, and I think— the hypothesis is that girls who use more African-American intonation features like the stuff I was talking about before may be more likely to receive discipline for things like insubordination mm -hmm. because it gets read as sounding hostile. Mm -hmm. um, and this is totally bound up with the, the country's history of racism and all of this stuff. So how do we address this? Well, first of all, why, do, why are the associations that people make with Southerners bad? Why are the associations that people make with African-Americans bad? Mm -hmm. That's like the number one problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not yeah. the language. It's that the language gets associated with other, other things that are racist and classist and, mm -hmm. and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is, are the conclusions that we jump to about people based on the way they sound are frequently correct, right? right? So not necessarily the bad ones, but if you hear someone say something and you go, oh, they're from the South, they probably are from the South. What you do with that then becomes do you the thing, it? right? Mm -hmm. So like they're from the South. If you like the South, you're like, great, this is my new best friend. <laughs> if you don't like the South, you're like, oh no, I don't like this person. Recognizing, sort of being able to check yourself and being like, okay, I made this judgment it's a preliminary judgment. I may or may not be correct. I need to get more information about this person, actually talk to this person and listen mm -hmm. to their ideas mm -hmm. and not the way they said something and jump to my own conclusions. Right. That's how we manage that. And this is one of the reasons that I really like teaching here. And I like, I like talking to the public and I really like teaching linguistic discrimination because that's, it's the process of learning how to check yourself. And even, I've been a linguist for almost half my life now, <laughs> getting there, um, linguistically interested anyway. And I still have those jump to conclusion moments too. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that the judgments that we make are bad. It's that the judgments that we make can be wrong. And all of our other social biases come in and bring in the bad parts of those judgments, the parts that make us treat people unequally. What kind of uh, advice would you have for teachers in particular who mm -hmm. are dealing with multiracial classrooms who may not who may not have much experience with that kind of code reading? Yeah. So one thing that I've seen recently that is positive is a lot more teachers are learning some basic sociolinguistics. Like oh, it's being okay. taught in more grad programs from mm -hmm. just from what I've heard. Um, and so them being able to recognize, oh, there is a different pattern of intonation in African-American English. So I heard this student, but maybe, maybe it's not that they're, you know, whatever I think, angry or whatever. It's just that 
they have a different system, Mm -hmm. right? And we are kind of able to do that. I think we have more forgiveness or more understanding for people who speak English as a second language, although that's, there's a whole lot of discrimination there, but at least like, okay, maybe this recognition that maybe there's a cultural difference or like maybe I'm hearing it wrong. Um, So sort of familiarizing themselves with the variation that exists in their classroom, I think, but also just that pausing, that taking a moment to be like, okay, I'm having this evaluation, um, but is it, is it me or is it the speaker, right? And you don't always know. So I think it's, it behooves us to be sort of cautious in that way. As, as we're talking about this, um, you mentioned in, in a different podcast uh, the case about Sandra Bland mm-hmm. and, and kind of being able to read kind of intonation and what does that mean. Can you talk a little bit about that paper yeah, that you're so recommending? That's why I actually um, – one of the first reasons that I got interested in this issue of school discipline was because of the case. So Sandra Bland was this black woman who was um, driving. She was moving um, to Texas and she was stopped by a white officer and they had um, an altercation. Uh, She was smoking a cigarette. He asked her to put it out. She didn't want to put it out. He ended up taking her out of the car and um, he did like slam her head against the hood of the car. And there's a video of all of this. It is a bad situation. Um, and then she was taken to the jail and then she was dead, like either the next day or a couple of days later. So, um, under, under sort of mysterious circumstances, but the idea is like, you know, that escalated way faster than it needed to. And so I wrote a piece for this, um, linguistics blog called language log with, um, some colleagues, Rachel Burdine and Joseph Tyler. And we actually looked at the intonation that both Sandra Bland and the officer were using in that, um, in that situation. And for the same thing, that same pitch accent thing that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was basically that she started, you know, with her baseline level of intonation that she had, and he started with his. The problem is that he only matched her, like where she started when he was really angry. And so we think maybe that he heard her and said, oh, this is her level of intonation. And I personally would only use this type of intonation if I was really angry. So she must be really angry. Mm. But it's not necessarily that she was really angry at the very beginning of the stop. She, you know, they both escalated. Um, and it was his job to not escalate that situation as the professional. Yeah. Um, but they they did both. Um, and so the problem was that he interpreted her as more hostile than she probably was because if he sounded that way, he would have been. They had a miscommunication. Right. But he, as the person in power, had the responsibility for de-escalating the, the results of that miscommunication. And that's sort of where we think this all went off the, off the rails in, that, in the stop itself. It's sort of forensic linguistics. I, I, I've never heard of that before. There is forensic <laughs> linguistics. <laughs> That's a whole kind of linguistics that I don't usually do. Um, but there, there is an increased interest. So there was a paper um, that won Best Paper in Language, which is language is like a really big linguistics journal, um, by John Rickford and Sharice King um, from Stanford. And they looked at uh, Rachel Jean Tell, who was Trayvon Martin's friend, who he was on the phone with when he was killed. Um, and uh, the, in the George Zimmerman trial, in the, the murder trial of the person that killed him, and um, they basically found that she was discredited. His The witness, Rachel Jean Tell, was discredited mm-hmm. at every step of this trial by the lawyers, by the jury that gave interviews afterwards, by the media, um, because she was not a speaker of what we call like mainstream U.S. English. She was a speaker of African-American English. She was young, black woman in Miami, mm-hmm. and they saw her as not credible because of the features of her language. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that had a uh, result in the outcome of the trial, right? We think that having a witness that's not seen as credible, of course, it would affect the outcome of the trial. So there's increasing interest from sociolinguists about how this impacts social justice, particularly linguists have always been interested in education, but now a little bit more in the criminal justice system um, because we see these sort of rampant systematic issues. Um, And it's an issue if you hear somebody behind you and you go, oh, that's a black guy, and then you're not nice to them. That's an issue. But it's a big systematic issue when it's the entire criminal justice system, Mm -hmm. especially with mass incarceration of black and brown bodies the way that it is now, right? So the language is fuel to the fire um, on this whole system. Right. Let's. Uh, what, you mentioned Obama as being one of your interests in, in in studying. Let's switch to that. And what makes him a masterful code switcher? 
Yeah, I think politicians in general are pretty good at this mm -hmm. because they have part of part of what we think happens when people engage in code switching or um, when it's within the same language, varieties of the same language, we tend to call it style shifting. So um, he's style shifting. Why he's so good. Politicians are so good at this because they're really motivated. Right. This is how they keep their job. <laughs> um, so motivation is half the battle. Sure. Um, he also Obama talks a lot about you know, growing up in white spaces, if you read his memoirs, and then and then feeling sort of alienated by that and then feeling um, more accepted by blackness as he got to be a teenager and in college and things like that, wanted to explore his blackness. So he actually has input from white and black speakers, right? And mm -hmm. input helps you figure out what's going on. So I think that's part mm -hmm. of the reason that he's so good. Um, but I also think that he, some people are just naturally good at it, right? Mm -hmm. And he, I think he might be. Um, he also seems to pay a lot of attention to the audience, right? So he's very cautious. And you can tell this even in you know, the things he chooses to talk about and yeah. things that aren't quite linguistic. He's very conscientious about who he's talking to and mm -hmm. how he wants to be read. Um, some politicians are better at that than others. So you will see, you will hear like, um, you know, Hillary Clinton got criticized a lot for going to Arkansas and trying to sound like she was down home, right? So some <laughs> of this, it, some of this doesn't work for political reasons. Yeah. So if you're already disliked, um, and you try to do something that's going to make you seem down to earth and likable, that might not go over well. Yeah. But if you're already liked, then people go, oh, look, he's so, he's so great. He's so down to earth. Um, it could go from is, down to earth to trying too hard. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem, right? So um, I, I've been thinking a lot about this as, you know, we're going to go into 2020 with all of the, the white candidates really trying to court black and brown folks, black and brown votes, mm -hmm. um, and being like, you, got, you guys got to figure out how to talk to people of color because you are not doing a good job. And their Spanish is horrible. Oh my god! Every time they speak Spanish, every time they speak Spanish, I, I like, cringe. Do not. I cringe. Oh my god! No. Just speak English. Just speak English. <laughs> but also, like, it's a problem, right? Because there is some level at which this is pandering. But you do want them to encourage encourage them to engage sure. with diverse communities. Sure. And so I don't want to say like nobody should ever speak Spanish, but. They've got to sort of figure out how to do this in a way that's real. And, it still and not, sounds like trying too hard. Yeah, and not trying too hard, not pandering, right? And the way to do that is like surround yourself with people from the community and they'll tell you if you're about to sound terrible. <laughs> like, I'll let you know. <laughs> they'll check yourself. And that might also be an answer for Obama, too. Obama had very diverse staff, very like, mm. you know, even the cabinet, like the people around him. So we had enough people around him to be like, man, maybe don't exactly say this right here, right? That's not going to go over well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if your staff is all people that look like you, you're only going to be able to talk to people that look like you. But unless you're able to do it with some naturalness, it's it's probably not a good idea anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And because like, it, it'll come across as fake. Yeah. And I think too, particularly, um, so African-American communities have a, a tradition of really valuing authenticity. And so <laughs> being it's the worst thing you can be is inauthentic. So if you're just like a middle class, middle aged white man who's only been around white people, like it's fine, I guess. Own it. But like, own it. Like show yeah, up and it. just yeah. be yourself. Yeah. 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 It's going to go better than if you try to, uh, you know, sound like Obama or something. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure that a lot of your students show up with very different accents from across the country and around the world. Um, do you find that, that some of them are self-conscious about that? And if so, how do you deal with it? Yeah, I think people are um, sort of on campus in general. The, the privilege that I have of teaching linguistics is we get to bring these issues out into the open from the very beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And talk about if you feel... Um, misunderstood or things like that. Well, why? Like, what is the scientific process that's going on? What's the social process that's going on mm -hmm. where people are or are not understanding you? And how can we, you know, you don't have to change, but how can we help you understand that? So if you want to change, you can change. If you don't want to change, don't change. But like having the ability, having the knowledge to be able to express yourself the way that you want um, and be heard the way that you want to be heard. Um, so I think that's one thing I really like about linguistics is it's really empowering. And particularly with the conversations that I've had about this have been, you know, Pomona has a lot of um, first gen students, a lot of students of color um, that grew up in communities that were predominantly black, for example. And so they get here, and this is the first time that they're around so many white people. Okay. And Pomona is very mm -hmm. diverse, but yeah. if you grew up in a community that was 95% black, it's very different right. for you, yeah. right. right? And 
let's be honest, the language norms are mainstream and white here. Like, they are because this is academia. Nobody Mm -hmm. gets here without being able to command the language that we see as prestigious. That's part of how linguistic discrimination works. So these students get here and they have command of academic English because they've learned it in school and they've able to do that. But the way that they speak socially has been from their community and they get here and people don't understand them or they react to them negatively or things like that. And then they feel some like social isolation because of that. Um, So I've got some ongoing research about that Mm -hmm. here at Pomona, but also with a colleague at Ohio State about the same thing about linguistic insecurity on campus um, and sort of trying to figure out what students say about how can institutionally and socially we create a more linguistically inclusive climate. Nobody should have to change the way they speak because the way we speak is part of who we are. Sure. So how can we make it so that the way that they speak is validated, reified, understood on this campus as well so that they don't feel the pressure to change? Because the people that feel the pressure to change are always the people that are already marginalized in other ways. Sure. Mm -hmm. Because you want to fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about your teaching, um, you have a course on Inside Out Prison Exchange. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah. So that's the linguistic discrimination course um, that I teach in the Inside Out Prison Exchange program. And I... This is weird career advice, um, but I I actually, I, when I first came to Pomona, I was a postdoc uh, for one year, and then um, I was tenure track. And when I was a postdoc, I had gotten this email that there was a justice education initiative in Claremont, and I was like, I don't know what that is, but I want to be involved. <laughs> so I emailed the person that it was from, and I, I met with her. It's um, Tex, Tessa Hicks-Peterson at Pitzer, actually, um, that now is in charge of the whole um, collaboration justice education program. Um, and she said, oh, we teach inside out classes, we go to this prison um, and we take students from the colleges there and we have the class with 12 students from the prison and 12 students from the colleges inside the prison and it's just a regular class. And I was like, wow, that sounds really hard. I'd like to do it because um, <laughs> I like a challenge. Um, so after my first semester of teaching, I went to the National Training for Inside Out programs, which was in Philadelphia. It's at Temple University, although now we do trainings. We do them in Claremont, too, now. Um, We just did one in the winter. And uh, I went, and then I taught my first Inside Out class, my first semester as tenure-track faculty. I was like, great, I'm going to take these students to prison, and it's going to be great. Um, And it it was great, Tenure, here I come. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, here we go. Um, No easing into it, just jump right in. Um, so we, uh, we took the 12 Claremont students, um, and we take them into the prison. We do the class with 12 incarcerated students. Everybody gets the same credit on their transcript. The idea of this program is that it's equal. And the magic is we are giving people the opportunity to talk to people that they wouldn't otherwise talk to and learn from people that they wouldn't have the opportunity to learn from. And specifically for linguistic discrimination, it's so beneficial to have a variety of linguistic backgrounds, right? So I had, um, I taught this twice now. So when I taught it last semester, I had a student who wrote a final paper. um, He was an incarcerated student about everybody that he knew that was incarcerated with him, who he had collected reports from them about the linguistic discrimination that they had experienced. So some of the people that he knew, it was like in court, they weren't afforded an interpreter that was good or Um, the judge made a comment about the way that they spoke and something about them using too much slang, right? So he talked to all kinds of people and was like, it was this shocking report about everyone he knew having faced linguistic discrimination in the criminal justice system. And that's information that he was able to share with the Claremont students who never otherwise would have had an inside perspective on that kind of a story, right? right? And me neither. Um, And at the same time, the students here would talk about the way that we talk about gender on campus, which is very different than the way that they talk about gender in a men's prison, right? Um, And so they were like, wait, they use they as a pronoun for one person? Like, that's a comment on your campus? And they were like, yeah. And they were like, well, it's cool, (laughs) right? So that is why, that's my favorite class to teach. And that's why I love it so much is because I don't, I'm not, I'm just there facilitating, right? They're learning from each other Mm -hmm. and and we're getting these really salient everyday experiences of linguistic discrimination from everybody's variety of backgrounds, which is it's like magic, right? Yeah. What kind of response have you gotten from the students, Both. from Both the Pomona sides. students yeah. and from the, the incarcerated students? Overwhelmingly positive, right? So the incarcerated students, and, and actually students at Pomona too, sometimes walk into a linguistics class and they're like, 
what? The same way that I did. Like, I didn't know linguistics was a thing. We don't uh-huh. teach that in high school. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. how did you end up here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I walked in and I met with the incarcerated students um, just alone, just me and them at first. And I was like, what did y'all sign up for? And they were like, we don't know. It was just, sounded, sounded cool. And, you know, it was the op- opportunity. We tried to take advantage of the opportunities. And I was like, all right, well, we're going to learn together. Um, <laughs> they, they really enjoy having the ability to interact on a human level with people that are not incarcerated because that's something that the system takes away from them, right? Yeah. And it's it's so, they describe it as really dehumanizing just to be kind of isolated from the outside world. Mm-hmm. So we think about prison as, okay, we keep people in, but we don't just keep people in in the prison system. We keep people out. Awesome. And when we keep people out, we are on the outside are missing out on the things that we have to learn from them and vice versa, True. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that they, they appreciate that experience and the, you know, the experience of like, learning linguistics like that's not something that people would sign up for but they tend to really like it once we get into it Mm -hmm. and have some experiences to bear on it Mm -hmm. from the Pomona students um it's you know most of them have never been inside a prison before I hadn't been inside a prison before until I started doing this work either and they they have sort of an academic understanding of the injustices that exist in the criminal justice system. But when they get in there and they have their classmates who they have real conversations with, who they learn real things from week after week, it's not an academic understanding. It's a personal understanding. Mm -hmm. It's a person that I care about Mm -hmm. now. And I see their promise and I see what they have to offer. And I see what all of us are missing out on by the fact that they're there and not out here with us. Right. So, um, I, what I hope, (laughs) um, for the Pomona students is that, you know, our students go on to be very successful. These students will be lawyers and doctors and judges and politicians and every manner of thing once they get out of this mm-hmm. place. And I want them to remember the person that they met on the inside. I want them to remember what we're all missing out on by those people being incarcerated so that when they have power, they can work to change that system. Right. Let's talk a little bit back to your um, days as an undergrad, I believe, is when you were studying uh, Quechua in Mm -hmm. Peru and Bolivia. Can you tell us a little about that work? Yeah, so I did that. um, I I did actually do it in grad school, too. So I have a a real paper about Quechua (laughs) Spanish bilingualism in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. So like in grad school, I went to Bolivia because I was working with um, a faculty member at NYU, Jillian Gallagher, who who works on Quechua. Um, she's a phonologist. So she hired me as an RA for the summer, um, which was awesome. I thought I had left Quechua behind yeah. when I got to grad school, but I didn't. I kept yeah. doing it um, just this time <laughs> in Bolivia. And, um, you know, I had heard when I was in Peru these stories, these really dramatic stories of linguistic discrimination that you only really hear in the United States from people who have been, um, so you you hear the similar type of stories from Native American kids who were removed from their families back in the day. You hear them about um, Japanese internment, so like people that have been incarcerated where they were beaten for speaking their language or, you know, otherwise reprimanded. But I would talk to people in Peru and Bolivia who were 60 years old who were like, no, I was beaten for speaking my language in school. Mm-hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I didn't teach it to my kids, Mm -hmm. particularly in Peru. That was the main project that I was doing there. Mm -hmm. Um, And they would say, yeah, you know, you'd have these older people who had had this traumatic experience who didn't teach it to their kids. So their kids are in their 40s. And then the the younger generation, the people who are teens and 20s who don't speak the language, they only speak Spanish and they Mm -hmm. can't talk to their grandparents or their great grandparents. They can't. Yeah. They know nothing about Quechua because their parents weren't taught it because the grandparents were so afraid of the stigma that they would receive, and rightfully so, mm-hmm. right? But you you get this intergenerational disconnect when you have systematized linguistic discrimination. So you do see that here um, with Native American communities really frequently um, as well. Um, but in Latin America, in many countries, there's been revitalization efforts in the in the last 20, 30, yeah. 40 years mm-hmm. to teach indigenous languages in the schools or at least locally or to sponsor community programs so people can reconnect um, right. with their language and their tradition. So that's been a good thing. Um, in Bolivia, uh, partially just because of socioeconomic things, there seems to be a little bit less of um, that uh, kind of top-down language banning type thing than mm-hmm. there than there was in Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, it works a little bit differently. Um, but 
there are sort of political political movements for indigenous liberation, um, which are starting to to sort of deal with the revitalization of these languages. The problem, though, is that once a language starts to become endangered, and Quechua is like not at all endangered. It's the most widely spoken indigenous language in this hemisphere. Mm-hmm. It's got like 10 million speakers. But once you you have other languages, though, that are more endangered. So like in Bolivia, that's Aymara with fewer speakers. Um once the languages start to decline and you have fewer people learning them and generations that don't learn them, it's very difficult to get them back. How do you preserve um, them? How yeah. do you preserve them? Yeah. And this is something that is it really is difficult for linguists because we want to preserve all the languages because that's our science and we learn things from them. But we also don't, we're not in a position to be able to say to speakers, no, speak your indigenous language instead of the one that's going to get you a job, Right. We can't do that. We shouldn't do that. It's not ethical. So the idea now in modern linguistics has been to partner with the community organizations and the people who are interested in doing revitalization and help them um, develop the tools to do that within their own communities with mm-hmm. less intervention from mm-hmm. us, right? So decolonizing linguistics, making it less of yeah. a, you know, a top-down yeah. Western American yeah, yeah. enterprise yeah. and more kind of bottom-up community work. Yeah. And what, sorry, what, oh, no. what, what you were saying that the schools are including, my family's from Ecuador, so I grew up in Ecuador. And and growing up there, we never learned Kitchen in, in school ever. Um, but then I, I didn't notice it existed until the census. And then we would see the slogans and things in Kitchen. I'm like, oh, what is that? And then I'm like, oh, there is another language spoken here. We're not learning it. But now my friend's kids are getting it in school. So it's nice to see that it's, 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 the revitalization efforts are are there. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. The most interesting case of this actually is Paraguay. Mm-hmm. So in Paraguay, um, the most widely spoken indigenous language is Guarani. Um, and they went from like 50% bilingualism to almost 90% bilingualism mm-hmm. because um, in the late 80s and 90s, there was a movement for to teach uh, schools, the indigenous languages, to teach, have bilingual schools. And so now in Paraguay, almost everyone is exposed to Guarani in school. So not, not that they can like speak it, everybody speaks it like fluently necessarily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you're not going to have that experience. So I've never heard of this thing. Right. Right. It's great. Um, where is your research going next? What uh, Do you have uh, something new you're working on? Yeah, so it's the project about black girls and school discipline and figuring out the relationship between girls that experience discipline for things like insubordination um, and their linguistic patterns, their usage of African-American English. Um, I'm also very interested in this in the criminal justice system. So there was recently a report, actually it was in California, about Um, Black women who are incarcerated face a lot more punishment than women of other races. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, it's definitely Mm -hmm. sociolinguistic. That's a little bit more of an uphill battle because gaining access to um, carceral institutions is really difficult. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, according to Institutional Review Board, people who are incarcerated are a vulnerable population. Um, So they're difficult to study. But I have some ideas about working with community groups with folks who are formerly incarcerated and sort of talking to them about their experiences. And, you know, I really like this idea of we do the part where we talk to the people and we figure out what's going on with them. And then we do the part where we measure what's going on with their language and we combine sort of the qualitative and the quantitative to figure out, get a holistic picture of what's actually going on with these folks. Mm -hmm. You've self-identified as an Angelino. Yeah. How does that, uh, your love for LA, how does that, you know... uh, influence your work or your love for linguistics? Yeah, I, um, I'm i from Ohio and I love Ohio. I love Columbus. No, no disrespect. <laughs> and I did a stint as a New Yorker, which was also interesting. But I basically got off the plane when I moved to L.A. and was like, nope, this is it. I'm <laughs> staying here forever um, because I love it here. Uh, and so I'm very interested in doing this kind of work, the the work about sort of injustice and, and women and linguistics here. Um, because California has such a sprawling um, system of incarceration, but also we got a lot of kids in school, right? We have massive education just because of our population. Um, So I think this is a really good place to do this. There's also, you know, being fairly progressive as a state, people willing to listen to the results of this kind of research in in a way that they might not be somewhere else. So I love doing this in LA. Um, The other thing is I'm working on a project that's just a traditional kind of dialectology study to figure out how people in different communities around LA speak um, with some anthropologists and linguists 
at UCLA, so with Norma Mendoza-Denton in anthropology there, and also with um, Franny Brogan, who's here, my colleague um, at Pomona. Um, and we are uh, going out and sending students out to, well, we're, we're going to start, um, to collect data uh, and just do sociolinguistic interviews to people with people to figure out what does it sound like to be an Angelino. Mm -hmm. And so we're interested in Spanish speakers. We're interested in people who speak Chicano English and African-American speakers and, you know, like the, the process of gentrification. What's that, what is that doing? to the language in different communities in Los Angeles. And so it's actually a really exciting time to be doing this kind of work mm -hmm. here because we're, we're really kind of documenting this ongoing social change that you can see through the language. In your classes, I've heard you sometimes like to show sketches from a certain comedy show. Um, can you tell us about that? My dream is to teach like a whole seminar in Key and Peel. <laughs> oh my God. And I'm so, when Key and Peel went off the air, it was so sad because like it's exactly, it's exactly what I do, right? So they are multiracial black men. Um, and they talk about this a lot. Like they have the famous sketch, uh, Obama's anger translator. Oh, it's so yes. funny. <laughs> um, so in the, if anybody hasn't seen the sketch, it's like the guy Peel is pretending to be Obama and he's sitting at the desk and he sounds, you know, just like Obama. He's very calm and reserved. And he's like, the Republicans are being obstructionist, right? And then the key, the other guy will stand behind him and he'll be like, and they need to get themselves together, right? <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's funny because it's it's what we all thought, like, this is how Obama must feel on the inside. He's so composed, but he must be so angry. He needs to feel angry. <laughs> it just Let seems it like out. he'd Let be angry. <laughs> um, and so I think because of the way that they sort of illuminate this stuff, um, and they make they make the the ratio linguistic subtext text. Um, there's a lot to be. This is why I like studying multiracial people too, right? When you study people who push on the boundaries of what we think our categories are, we can learn something more about how we came to have these categories and what to do about them. So, for a long time, even in the linguistic research, multiracial people were kind of overlooked or excluded or, or there weren't very many. And so people didn't really write about it. But this is a category now, right? Starting with the 2000 census, people can check more than one box. And the census still doesn't know what to do with us, right? Um, there's just this, cat when you see census data, it's like, okay, percentage of black people, percentage of white people. And then it says two or more races. And I'm like, you're putting me together with people who are mixed Asian and Latino. And I am neither of those things. And I'm very confused. Why are we in the same category? We're having different experiences, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And so that's why like, <laughs> we've got to figure out how to do this, yeah. right? Because race is changing and the way that we think about race is changing. And mm -hmm. so um, I think, you know, looking at Obama, looking at Key and Peele, right? We can sort of start to see how that operates for regular people, mm -hmm. right? Non-linguists out mm -hmm. in the world. Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of that the, the idea of race is starting to come apart. And it was never a very clear concept to start with. Yeah. Yeah, it's still there, right? I, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say coming apart, but it's, we're very confused, yeah. right, about our social categories right now. And this is a good thing and they're problematized, right? Mm -hmm. And what do you think if we're, I mean, not just with language, but with everything, we, we kind of want to categorize. So if you look at somebody, if you hear somebody, we're like, <laughs> what does that, if I'm not seeing them, I'm like, what does that person look like? Or if I look at you, it's like, I wonder what she is. Yeah. We, we're, we're very, we tend to go there even if we don't, we're like, wait. Why am I doing that? Before you, when meeting them or talking to them or getting to know them. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't, this might be a controversial position. And I say this to students all the time. It's not the judgment. It's not the categorization. We do that by nature. And it's evolutionary. Why do we do that? We have to figure out who we think is likely to be, you know, in tribal times. Like, are you a friend or are you a foe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? The problem is our modern society. We're trying to do modern society with, you know, old school brains. <laughs> um, which, with tribal instincts. With tribal instincts, right? Yeah. And so we run up against these issues. But it's not a bad thing to be curious about where people are from. It's a bad thing to treat people differently or to make that the central part of their experience. So in the interviews that I did um, with the young men, one of the questions that I asked was, do people ever ask, what are you? Every single one of them said yes. And I was like, yeah, people ask what I am all the time too. Mm -hmm. It's really weird to go up to a person that you don't know and be like, what are you? Like that's human. What? Yeah, like what am I supposed <laughs> to say? I mean, I know what you're asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lately, I've gotten that less. I feel like people are more like, so what's your ethnic background? Which is <laughs> same question. <laughs> what's your ethnic? Okay, fine. I will tell you, like my mom's white and my dad's black. And I, for me, because it's what I study, it's fine. 
I think, though, if it's the first question or in the first three questions that you ask when you meet somebody, it really does hurt because you're like, well, you can't just talk to me without with you got to know what my category is, huh? You want to know what box right. I got it. Yeah, you got to know what boxes I check. And it's also it's not that it just happens once in a while. It's that it happens so often to people who are sort of racially or ethnically ambiguous that we just get tired and we're like, I was just trying to order a coffee. Why are you asking me what race I am? It's like relevant to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but this categorization isn't necessarily bad, it's bad when we use it to do bad things, right? I like that. Um, if, if people are interested in learning more about some of the things you study, um, like African-American English, are there books you'd recommend? Yeah. So I did mention English with an accent, which is mm-hmm. generally about linguistic discrimination. So it talks about Asian-Americans, it talks about Latinos in the U.S., it talks about African-Americans. So that's a nice overview. Um There's a book by the famous linguist John Rickford called Spoken Soul, which talks about the history and structure of African-American English. It's co-written with his son. Um, It's a very good sort of introductory book. Um, There's... A lot, a lot of linguistics books. <laughs> I have I have some uh, some links to websites and things that I like on my website too. Okay. Um, if people want to, you know, Google me, they can do that. Mm-hmm. And you've said that citizen linguistics or citizen linguists are the wave of the future. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I can sit up here, you know, in my nice faculty office and be like, I think that African American English is changing, <laughs> um, but. I'm not really the right person to be making that determination. Like, I'm not out here in the world, right? Mm-hmm. This is my job. So what I want is for people out here uh, just being regular to talk about issues of language, to talk about linguistics. Linguists would love if we taught linguistics in school the way that we teach math. Like, please, let's get us yeah. a linguistics class. Um, because there are communities that we don't have access to, right? There were very, very few people of color in linguistics prior to the 80s. There's not a lot now. It's like really bad. So I think the last stat, um, stat that I saw on this was like less than 5% of people with PhDs in linguistics are black or Latino. So oh, wow. it's really, it's, it's taken a while to diversify as a field. But the effect that that has on our science is there's communities we don't even think to look at. Sure. Right. And it's not just race. So this happens. Um, you know, uh, my colleague Pitzer, Carmen Fott, um, is she she's injured. And so I'm, I've been uh, I'm taking over her language and gender class for a little bit. And the students in language and gender always say, like, well, but why are they treating gender as a binary? Well, there weren't trans folks doing linguistics, openly doing <laughs> linguistics until very recently. So a lot of the stuff that we have to have you read is before people you had this born. understanding of gender, right? The way that they do now, like the literature hasn't caught up and the literature mm. doesn't catch up unless we have people from these communities doing the work too. Yeah. So that's kind of what I mean by involving the citizens in linguistics. So on that note, we're, we're going to wrap this up. Um, <laughs> our thanks to linguistics professor Nicole Holliday for talking with us about how sociolinguistics uh, shapes one's identity and perception. Thank you, Nicole. That was fun. Thank you. It was fun for me too. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, 